Welcome to... Hey, Great Shot. This is the Great Shot Podcast, a Crack Rackets and Tennis Channel Podcast Network production. My name is Alex Gruskin. On today's show, we have another preseason edition of The Deciding Point where we offer our top 10 Division I men's and women's teams heading into this 2024 college tennis season. Of course, we are recording today's episode on Wednesday, December 27th. What does that mean for all of you listeners? Well, it means hopefully you are all enjoying this holiday season. You're all enjoying some time with your loved ones, with your family. Certainly, we hope these players across the country are enjoying their final moments of free time as we are now less than three weeks away from the start of the 2024 college tennis season. Thus, it feels fitting that we have now reached the second half of our previews as it relates towards our preseason top 10. We have officially passed the halfway mark and we have entered the top five of our preseason rankings. Certainly at this point, you start to think all of these teams, if things break right, could just be competing for a national championship in May. And of course, on today's show, we have arguably the most fascinating, the most polarizing team perhaps in all of Division I men's college tennis entering this 2024 season. Certainly has me excited for today's conversation about number five Stanford. And joining me for today's conversation on the second half of back-to-back men's preview podcast here this week is the man who has joined me on each and every one of these shows, not just this year, but for the past four, five years as well. He's my co-host on the deciding point throughout the regular season and a man you all know best as the forefather of the College Tennis Ranks Formula predictions. Never far from the listed UTR, one of the many dames who used to root for the Liberty Flames, but of course now we know him as a lean, mean Michigan Wolverine, a man who for the first time when alluding to those Michigan Wolverines before the podcast asked me, Alex, do you think we are going to advance over Stanford on kickoff weekend? Now, I don't use that we term anymore, but it's great to hear our co-host, Chris Halioris, use it to describe the Wolverines. Chris, hey, great shot. Welcome back to the show. Did you enjoy intro number one? two or three the most thus far on today's podcast i mean it's the aggregate and i hope westoff leaves those in for everybody (laughs) if not you'll just have to take solace in knowing it indeed was three take gruskin today (laughs) and it has not been three take gruskin since well i don't remember her name but uh uh, anyway uh uh no it hasn't been that for uh who knows how long gruskin's been on point so uh but the holiday festivities must be getting to you it's I have a lot of things. I think it's the heat being in Florida. And it's, by the way, it's a very mellow week. It's like 60, 65. I've just reached the age officially, Chris, where I am always a little bit sweaty. Like if you were to check my back at any moment, the pores are open and like things are ready to be released from the toxins are all trying to sneak out of my body. But yeah, I know. Three take Ruskin. I, maybe it's yeah, the post-holiday grind. The eggnog isn't sitting quite as pretty as it once did. But no, more than anything, I'll tell you what, I feel really good to reach the halfway mark. I'm certainly excited for the start of the college tennis season. It feels like it's starting to get in the air, right, Chris? You start to see some Instagram posts here and there. Certainly most, if not every schedule now has been released by all of these teams. 
Are you ready for the like? How do you still need the extra two weeks? Or are you ready to roll the balls out and play? Oh no, this is like the worst time. Like once we yeah. get past Christmas, I don't even do anything on New Year's. So I'm just, <laughs> God, that's that's the next thing to happen. It's like let's get let's get college tennis going. They should just start matches January first. That's what I'm saying. Who needs the extra time? Forget the dead period. Forget going down to Florida to get your team in shape and a little training session. Now let's roll the balls out. Let's play. I know you. I speak for college tennis fans everywhere when I say we are ecstatic for the start of the 2024 season. And again, you all know the deal with these preview podcasts. If you don't buy now, maybe you're a Stanford fan and you haven't listened to the past episodes, which by the way, you can find our thoughts on teams 10 through 6 in our preseason rankings by scrolling down in your Great Shot podcast feed. You can learn more about our process and coming up with our preseason rankings by listening to the College Tennis Preview Preview podcast. But of course, in each of these episodes, we like to recap. All these teams 2023 talk about their rosters entering the new season, talk about the summers, the falls, all these players had, break down the lineups, talk about the schedules, ceiling, floors, etc. I imagine, again, many of you listeners know the deal by now, but you also know that from time to time, we like to start with an opening tangent here on these podcasts. And my opening tangent for Chris today has to do with the concept of the December surprise, the November surprise, something we often talk about here at Crack Rackets, have fun with. When you get those late announcements of players either beginning their college career unexpectedly in a spring, a player returning to college when you least expect it, or perhaps now in the era of the COVID eligibility, you find out players are still eligible that you weren't aware of entering this portion of the calendar. And that leads me to today's opening tangent, Chris, because looking at the rosters, and I know we talked about it in the moment, obviously the announcement, Adrian Boitan, who played a full year of pro tennis in 2020, you know, second half 2022, first half of 2023, he announces he's going to be spending his final year of eligibility, which yes, he did have one year of eligibility remaining, he announces he's going to be going to play at Wake Forest. And we still don't know 100% if he is eligible yet. But certainly, you learn something like that. You learn about the Daniel Morita late edition, the Michigan State freshman, that late announcement, 13.9 UTR, whatever his world tennis number is as well. He's going to be really good. Certainly, he's a late addition to the crew. There's another name as it relates to the men's side of things that we have to discuss as well. Because you and I, even if they're not a top 10 team, at this point of the calendar, we're doing our research. We want to prepare for the season. We want to have expectations. We want to know what to expect. And certainly a program that, for better or worse, has been on our radar these last three years. And oftentimes, unfortunately, we've been speaking about it for worse, is the UCLA men's tennis program, a program obviously historically maybe as, if not more successful than any program we have in men's collegiate tennis history, a program that has struggled. You know, they haven't been a top 16 seed in a couple of years. We haven't seen them at a national indoors, at a final NCAA site in quite some time. Well, I'll tell you what, Chris— I was meandering through their roster as I was trying to get some expectations put together, try to figure out who belongs where in the broader perceptions of the rankings. And lo and behold, who do I see on the UCLA roster as we approach this 2024 season? A young man by the name of Govin Nanda. The same Govin Nanda who's a former USTA Boys 18s finalist as it relates to Kalamazoo. The same Govan Nanda, who, of course, 
reached as high of a ranking as top 400 in the ATP singles rankings with his pro success. And the same Govinanda, who some of you may remember, Cressy, Smith, Nanda, 2019 UCLA, those three find one more. They were so successful, they found themselves in that super regional, right? Ultimately playing, I believe, uh, Baylor in that round of 16 match. What was a really fun round of 16 match for the nerds that remember it. Now we have, you know, again, Govananda, after playing a couple years for UCLA men's tennis, he decides to go play pro. He decides to go become, reach a career high of 339 in the ATP singles rankings in October of 2022. Well, now it looks like he might just be back. And now it looks like he might just be eligible as well, Chris. And again, the nuances of eligibility. If he was taking courses while playing pro tennis, does that mean technically he's eligible? I suppose we'll leave that up for the NCAA Committee on Eligibility to decide. But more broadly, these December surprises, these eligibility questions, do you think it's good for the game? Do you think it's bad for the game? How do you approach all of these things? Well, I mean, from a PR standpoint, it can't be bad, right? Any Anything to get us talking about it uh, from, from that standpoint, I think, is good. I do think that at some point we get enough of them mm-hmm. that people just get fed up and they're like, oh, stop already. Like, it's, you know, it, it's too much. Uh, the, you know, between the, the older incoming freshmen that, you know, people thought didn't even know mm-hmm. could possibly be uh eligible like you know you leave out uh you know in that mix you talked about marita but you got say oscar waitman at sure at usc right same class high school wise as johannes monday uh but just coming in now and yeah it's it's everybody's situation is different and obviously they you know to get eligible they have to follow the ncaa rules they've been in school or they haven't played pro tournaments in six months whatever all the rules are um but yeah, I don't know. From I, I think those are to me the more interesting ones are the guys that have never played college and are trying to come in. These guys that have played, I, I, I have half a mind to say, look, it, it, not because of not from the school standpoint really, but just from the players. If you've played college and you decide to leave and you go play pro, you that's you're done. Like I, I I'm, I'm fine if we just go. Let's not even bring that one back up. Like okay. If, if you gave it a shot, it didn't work fine. You gave it a shot and it didn't work. Come back and finish your degree if you want, but you're not playing tennis anymore. Like you, you gave it up, but, uh, but it certainly is. It's, uh, it's fun to talk about and fun to see what's going to happen. We don't even, again, like you stated, we have no, we have no idea if Adrian Boyton is going to be eligible. I think the situations here are different where Govin's been taking classes. I don't think Adrian was, um, none of which will ever, you know, we're not going to get, you can't even go look up on the NCA site, which is something I think they ought to have not any inner workings, but you should just be able to put a name in and say, as of right now, this minute, are they eligible? We can't even do that. So you're, you're not going to know, but boy, we thought last year was a, was sort of drawn out between JPJ and Lerner Tien. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, both kind of like the surprise, JPJ showing up at a Baylor match because he gets eligible all of a sudden and then Lerner waiting all the way till till when he had till April. But, uh, you know, we've got a lot more of those names this year. Now, granted, that's not all the NCAA is doing. So maybe if it's lighter in other sports, but with as many as we have, 
it it could be another long drawn out process for a lot of these guys, which is actually the unfortunate part. They almost need just like they have deadlines on the transfer portal. They probably need to put deadlines on these things to just say, look, you know, the deadline for submitting eligibility requirements for the, for the season is X. And if it's not in before that, then we'll consider it for the next season. But but having to do it, you know, while, after the season's already taking off and they're still in February and March going through cases of eligibility to make someone eligible in, you know, March or April, uh, that part I don't care for. Uh, but, you know, in the grander scheme of things, if it gets us talking about college tennis and it gets more people watching, okay. Yeah, I, I agree with many of the points you made there. Like, for me... Do I care if a 21-year-old who wanted to go play a few years of pro tennis, it didn't work out for them in the direction they were hoping. They now want to pursue a different pathway in life. They want to go see if if you know college athletics is something they can pursue and not only have the athletics part maintained as a part of their life, but someone like Barbatzer who then leverages his college tennis success to go get a business degree to be able to prepare himself, set himself up for life after tennis. I actually have no issues with any of that. Like, I don't care if you're 21. I honestly wouldn't care if you were 25. Like, I really don't. 35, even after your pro career. Like, I think it would be great if Roger Federer was like, you know what? I'd like to go get a college degree. And while I do it, I might as well play college tennis. Like, how would that be bad for the sport, hypothetically, Chris? I just don't think it would be. I have, like, I know that's the the most extreme of the hypotheticals. And, you know, again, that's, I suppose, maybe people wouldn't love that. But I would, like. If you have not explored any of your eligibility, I know it's supposed to be amateur athletics and we're not trying to bring in these hired gun pros. But if you can legitimately prove like, hey, this person is going to stay four years and get their degree and not just come for a little one and done semester blip off the pro tennis, but go off and play whatever. Like, I have no issues with that. I honestly don't have that many issues as well with a thing like Ananda coming back or a Boyton coming back because it's not as though... They were out there for seven years, like after, you know, again, it, because they had already played college tennis. That's the difference between these people is they've already started that process, et cetera. Like, I guess, again, more broadly, the answer is no, I don't care. I want as many talented players as possible within our sport. I want the quality of play to be as high as possible. If that means bringing in 21-year-olds with pro experience like a Waitman, like a Marita, like... I guess my answer is no. I don't care. What pisses me off, Chris, is the uncertainty of are they or are they not eligible? Like, Lerner Tien should have been eligible from the moment he wanted to come play college tennis. Jack Pennington Jones should have been eligible the moment he wanted to play college tennis. And that those people weren't infuriates me. Like, it's granting eligibility to someone to me isn't the problem. It's when you, it's when you, declare someone ineligible that pisses me off I guess that would be my take on all of this and like boy I would love to see Nanda active for UCLA because now all of a sudden it's Nanda it's Huga Martins it's Giacomo Ravelli like now you can start talking yourself into some things about this UCLA team Chris and how is that not better for the sport yeah I mean I like I said, for j- just to get talking about it and get people to see, sure. I think the I think one of the big problems with with doing that is, you know, there will be people, and we know who those people are. Who they already do it for crying out loud. The who who will try to game the system, you know, with things like that, and say, oh, you know what? Like 
I've got this great class. I, I know I've got a great class coming in two years. I'm going to tell two of my top guys, you know what, guys, just, you know, just take off, go play pro. And on the off chance, it doesn't work out, you know, maybe. And they're they're probably guys that, you know, are in that range of, you know, going to need a lot of help to make it. But they're top 20 college guys type guys. You go in two, you just keep taking classes in two years. You come back with this class we got coming in and we're going to be unreal. I, you know, you can start setting up classes, doing things like that. I'm not a, I'm, I'm not a huge fan. It's almost like the people that try to tell guys, or it's not even the coaches, it's the parents that try to hold their kids back a year in high school because they want them to get that, to be a, a year older and have that much more of an edge in recruiting and get the money and blah, blah, blah. It's, it gets into too much of that where I just care about the tennis. And sure, if we were just playing tennis, um, that's, that's what I want to see is the, is the tennis. Fair enough. I would just say to that, and then we'll move on to Stanford, I promise. But I would just say like, if you can convince a kid to go play pro for two years, not begin his eligibility, but if you're like, Hey, we really like this recruiting class. Can you actually give us a year and then come like shout out to that coach and shout out to that kid? Because like that kid's like, yeah, I'm da-. like, if he has the ability to go do that credit to him, man. And then, you know what? The, the, the alternative of that is what if he's good on the pros? He goes, you know what? I actually don't need this college. Yeah. Test, then he's so not. not college. Go. That's yeah. what I'm saying is like, I guess I don't have problems with it, and I'm probably in the minority here, and it would be great if there was a standard set of rules, and I'm sure there are millions of things I'm overlooking here. But, like, if a coach right now could convince, like, Denis Shapovalov coming off of injury to be like, yo, come play college tennis for a year. Like, recover, recuperate. It'll be on our dime. It'll all be out there when you get back. How would that not be better for the sport? I guess, like, who loses in that scenario, Chris? I get all the teams who have to play Shapovalov, sure. But more broadly, it's like the Daishnai experience. It's just like all press is good press, and I don't know how that would be a bad thing for the sport. I guess I would love to hear the argument of, like, here's where you'd lose immediately. Because I don't – granting eligibility to student-athletes who just want to get a little education and get a little tennis in as well – I know I'm being a little naive here and a little simplistic, but like, I'm all for it. It's not like Nanda comes back and he still has, you know, Nanda comes back as a senior. Like, this is his final year of eligibility. Fine. Like, that works for me. Once you start, you got four years or five years to finish, however you want to do it. That's fine. Once you have a starting block, you have a window, but you can come back and forth at any time in that window. I got no issues with it. This time for real final word to you. Am I being an idiot? Am I being too simplistic? Well, no. I mean, the obviously the 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 pro the top pro thing, considering a chapeau or whatever, is just that's not going to happen. I mean, there obvi- the money issues are there. It's not amateur anymore. But but uh, you know, it's more like taking taking the guys that were fighting, clawing their way up, and they get up into the. And we've had you know what I would call the lower end of that guys that have gotten up to, to, you know, three, four, 500 in the world. Like your you know, show at, at Florida state guys, you know, you had Richard at Virginia back when and, sure. and Soderlin, whatever, but guys that have gotten, you know, some good rankings, but never quite made it. And then come to college. I think that's, that's one thing, you know, taking a, taking a guy, even if they're young, like getting a sinner or an Alcaraz or someone like that and going, Hey, come to college. No, they've already made the money. And then, and for sure the, I think some of the problem then just becomes, especially those guys probably don't know the American college system all that well. Chapo, maybe, 
But then it just becomes, oh, I'm a huge fan of, you know, Alabama football. I'm going to go play tennis there. You know, you just get the favorites thing and that ruins it. But oh, I disagree. Yeah. That'd be sick. Like, I'm in <laughs> on that. Like, I guess here's it all. This will be my last example. Jakob Karabov came to Wake Forest last year and the world did not end. Like, everything still continued to rock and roll as is. And it's just like... It's been like it's, two years, hasn't it? Yeah, exactly. It's things like that where it's just like, come on. Like, what, is, well, what are we what We've are we actually doing? seen, as long as we're not talking top 200 guys in the yeah. world, we've seen that these top 500 guys, because we've got college guys that are top 500, they come in yeah. and they don't just beat everybody and play number one and win the sure. NCAA title. I mean, look, JPJ came in last year and some people might've thought, Oh, the guy's going to play one. He's going to beat everybody. He's going to win an NCAA title. And it just doesn't happen. The level is, is there. Uh, so that I don't think it's from that perspective. I think it's, I think it's, I mean, I'm, I'm all for good tennis and getting it up as long as it's fair. And it's the things that you said, the things that we're overlooking and not talking about that somehow would make it unfair and uh, you know if it started to skew the landscape uh if you will towards you know some teams over others whether it was because of money or because of what who knows what that's where it starts to be you know it gets out of hand other than that sure we all just want to see good players yeah and again with the addition of nil maybe that is where things start to get a little bit funky anyways it's a massive question at Crack Rackets, at A.L. Gruskin, at College Tennis Ranks. Let us know where you stand on this eligibility stuff. I am pro it. Grant, make everyone eligible. If coaches want to know if I'm still eligible, I would love to find out that answer as well. So let's test the NCAA limits. Let's see. Again, no one would make a better R-Y-A-N Dickey than Chris Hallioris. If you need a hype man on your roster, you have a spot available, throw him a little NIL deal. Chris Hallioris will gladly uh, start calling our your team we, as he refers to them throughout the rest of the season. But all that said, the we we are discussing today is number five Stanford, one of the most polarizing teams, in my opinion, to discuss as we enter this 2024 season and a team that, by the way, has been polarizing here at Cracked Rackets for four years now. I think the foundation of my Chris and Matt's relationship was me arguing that Stanford is too high in their preseason rankings and listening to Matt and Chris go, no, just look at the roster, just look at the talent. But it's worth re-examining where this Stanford program actually is right now. And, you know, again, as we reflect on 2023, a year that saw the Cardinal go 16-11 and 11 overall, a year that saw them play a really fun NCAA tournament run. They go to Columbia. They beat the Lions 4-2. They then push Kentucky to the brink with Kentucky just barely just barely surviving 4-3 in Lexington, a Kentucky team that, by the way, went on to play national champions Virginia 4-3 in the NCAA quarterfinal round, or maybe it was 4-2, whatever that was. Here's the point. You look for this Stanford program. There is no doubt they had the talent last year. Injuries certainly played a factor, but Ferry, Basing, Bosforetti, Banerjee, You'll take that top four as much as you would take anyone's top four from last season. And again, what makes things so fascinating is this is a Stanford program that has accomplished so many different things. Obviously, 17 national championships. They won a national championship in five out of six seasons every year but 1999 from 1995 to 2000. 
here's the thing though, Chris Hallioris. They have not won an NCAA championship since. Again, 2000, the last time they won the NCAAs. Their last conference championship came back in 2021. They were the coach the last time before 2021, though. You'd have to go all the way back to 2015. And here's the big thing. When was the last time we saw this team at a final site? When was the last time we saw this team competing in an NCAA quarterfinal round as well? Well, if you want to go with that final site question, you'd actually have to go all the way back to 2019. No, no, excuse me, not 2019. You'd have to go all the way back wow. to 2017 was the last time they made a final site. 2017 round of 16 was in uh, Wake Forest. Wake Forest, Wake Forest yeah. knocking out Stanford 4-0 in that opening round. So we haven't seen them at a final site in over half a decade. To your point, we haven't seen them in a quarterfinal since 2012 when they got knocked off by Virginia 4-0. Of course, the year prior was the Klon, Thatcher, Clayton team that played a thriller 4-3 at Stanford 2011 in the NCAA quarterfinals round. One of my favorite matches. One of those matches, by the way, Chris, I have the YouTube highlights memorized from. There's a point in those YouTube highlights where you see a young kid in the crowd as they pan to the fans, and only the nerds will know that kid is Yale Goldberg, who was a Stanford commit at the time, future Stanford player. And it's like, oh, it's young Yale um, whenever I go back and watch it. Anyways, here's the point. Stanford's a blue blood, right? No one would consider them anything but in the broader ecosystem of college tennis. They've got the greatest, you know, no one will ever dispute 98 Stanford. When you're talking about how many points you drop, not how many matches you drop, how many points you dropped. 98 Stanford's still the, the standard bearer of best teams in men's college tennis history. That's always where the discussion starts. The Stanford program hasn't been in that echelon, though, Chris, for a decade. Again, they have not had a top eight finish at the NCAA tournament in over 10 years. And it is worth noting the last couple of seasons, 4-3 loss to Kentucky. 4-3 loss to Baylor, a couple of 4-2 losses to Virginia, and then, of course, you go back to that final Tom Fawcett season where they make the national indoor final but are upset 4-3 by Stanford, uh, by Mississippi excuse me, at home in the round of 32. With all of that context provided, I ask you for this Stanford program. As we look back at the 2023 season, again, 16-11, and 11, they make the round of 16, and as we look at this program more broadly right now, I do think it's fair to say underperformance and questions about the Cardinal, they're legitimate at this point, are they not? Like, I think I finally persuaded you to just like, I'm not saying doubt the Cardinal, but they have to re-earn our trust. Well, yeah, there's no question, and for more reasons that we'll get into. But yeah, absolutely, it was an underperformance. We expected more. It was the one team we had in our preseason top 10 that didn't finish there. The other nine did, South Carolina taking their place. But uh, yeah, I mean, they it's a team that for, to your point, many, many years now has had the talent on paper. You know, you talked about Fawcett in between there. How, how do you have teams with, you know, Axel Geller and Rotzer and, you know, and I just don't, and you never, ever make it to the final eight. Like, come on, at least one year in there, you have to, it's just never come together for them. And then, you know, now you have, you know, even last year you had Ferry, Banerjee, Basileretti, Basing. I, I give me those four guys and uh, geez, how you don't get there. I don't know. So, and obviously like with anybody else, well, it could be injuries. It could be whatever it is. It's 
gotten in the way, but yeah, they've always had the, they've had the names on paper. They've never had the team, uh, you know, since we've been covering it and it's been, it's been just disappointment year after disappointment year. And, and I, I swore I was going to stop and do everything I could to not put them in my top 10, but my gosh, this recruiting class, we're going to talk about that came in this year. They don't care about what the past has been. And, you know, and it's, you know, and it's not a bunch of foreign kids either that don't even know American college tennis. These guys should be well aware of what they're getting into uh, right away and and be a little more ready to adapt to that game. You just you can't keep them out. But at the same time, we'll get into all these questions we have about everyone else on the team. It's going to be a very, very questionable year for them again. That's the most fascinating part is you can ask a legitimate question with like serious intrigue about just about everyone on their roster. And again, we're going to do that today. But just to put this final bow on, again, the context of the Stanford program. It's often thrown around, and I often, you know, when people say it's often thrown around, I always like to say, well, who are these people that are actually saying these things when people go, you know, people are saying that, but if you have conversations with coaches, with players, with people around college tennis, the idea that, you know, academics are just a little bit different at Stanford, and it's a little bit more rigorous for the Stanford Cardinal student than it is for perhaps your other high-level Division One athlete, I'm sorry, but I'm calling bullshit. On that, Chris, because from 1970 to nine uh, to 2000, that was never an issue for the Stanford Cardinal. And if you want to say, okay, but you know, the, there's just more parity now in the game, and you know, recruiting is more competitive, and the talent is more equally dispersed. If that's the reasoning you want to give for the step back in the Stanford decline, that I will accept. But I won't accept that it's just a more rigorous academic schedule and a Stanford player is somehow more worn out than any other player across the country has come May. And that's perhaps why they've struggled a bit more down the home stretch relative to their peers. I'm sorry. I just don't accept the premise of that argument, Chris. Oh, absolutely not. Look, they're a they're in a power five conference. And with the Stanford athletic name, everybody knows they've got the academic name, but they've got that athletic name behind them. And they've been no better than Columbia and Harvard, who I'll put in the same tier any day academically, who can't even give money. <laughs> I mean, come exactly. on. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, and and those guys are doing it uh, and they're doing it with disadvantages that Stanford doesn't have. So no chance that that that's the issue. I could not agree with you more there. And that's again what makes this season so particularly fascinating for the Cardinal is that it was one of those seasons where the combination of returners plus new additions. This is, this is dare I say, they say it's not your father's roster or whatever. This is your father's Stanford Cardinal. This is one of those teams that on paper, the talent level is equal to. No, or it certainly no one exceeds Stanford from a talent level top to bottom on the roster this season. And that's why Chris and I are bringing up all of this additional context to start uh, this podcast. Oh, actually, we started the podcast with 15 minutes on eligibility. But to start this Stanford section, uh, yeah. why we're bringing up can the whole be greater than the sum of the parts? Because, and I think Coach Goldstein would be the first to admit this. It absolutely has not been, right, over the past decade. Like, the sum has been less than uh, than the total of the parts. And it's just, like, individually, again, 
Bosferetti's making challenger semifinals, and part of that has to do with he had his left wrist back. He could hit through his backhand more frequently. He was just a little bit healthier summer fall than he was during the season. But how can you watch Arthur Ferry become a top 275 player in the world? How can you watch Bosferetti do what he's done? this past offseason, and then knowing last year Max Basing was a top 25 player in the fall. Samir Banerjee is a former junior Wimbledon champion who you were asking to play not one or two in your lineup, but in the middle of your lineup last season. And by the way, Banerjee 9-2 and two at the number three spot last season, 15-5 and five in dual match play. Like, Banerjee was doing his freaking job, and this team lost in the round of 16. And again, part of that was a, a crappy draw. Like, they had to go to Kentucky. They had to go to Columbia. But that's because they struggled during the regular season. Again, 16 and 11. How the hell did this team lose 11 matches last season, Chris? I just, like, even looking at it, at Cal, at Washington, at Oregon. Like, I'm sorry. I, I know there were close matches. Even if there are injuries, even if Bosferetti has one wrist, like you're f-ing Stanford. I'm sorry, I'm yeah. swearing a lot here, and I know this is passionate, but it's because this team is that good, and it's incumbent upon Chris and I to hold them to that standard because we want this sport to be the best it can be. And there is no denying the sport is at its best when the Blue Bloods are at its best, when a Stanford is clicking, when a Georgia is clicking, when all the big programs are clicking. It's good for college tennis. It means we're all rolling in. And in an era, Chris, where everyone is – like, everyone says it. This is the golden era. This is as good as college tennis has ever been. And it's partly eligibility-related. It's because now you can convince players in Europe, and it's become international. Hey, you want to come develop here? This is the place. Like, can Stanford retain its blue blood status in this era? I actually think it's such a fundamental question to the 2020s in college tennis. And maybe I'm being a little hyperbolic here, Chris, but we're at the halfway mark. I've missed you. You know, again, we're finding our stride. We potted yesterday as well, so I know we're going to have a good conversation today. I just like, I look at the roster. Banerjee's back. Bosferetti's back. Basing's back. It's like you just start with those returners alone. That's a top 10 core to build off of. Well, yeah, absolutely. But I, you know, to, to circle back to the point you made to begin with, I mean, it's a combination of the two. Yes, you're right. Stanford should be able to overcome an injury. But at the same time, it's, yeah, it's the fact that, yeah, they weren't just a great team as a team to begin with. And, I, I'm not, I did not go back and look, but I'd be willing to bet you talk about those 11 losses. How many times in those 11 losses did they have all of the top four, mm-hmm. right? It's probably, I'm going to guess it's not a lot. I don't know. And and then I say that and, and, and it might also be with a little asterisk of how many times did they have the top four and, you know, they had a boss already that could hit a backhand. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's the, you know, he might've played, but played, you know, just to hold a position or a, he was a sacrificial lamb in a few matches that we saw, but, but yeah, it, even at that, you, you've got to come out and you got to do it. It's, and if, even if it was a one year thing with bad injuries, okay, I'll give it to you. It's been going on year after year after year. And, uh, yeah, at some point they got to stop it, but you're right. I, the only thing I'll say is, uh, yeah, when you look at this team on paper, there one exception, and that one exception is Texas. Yeah. Uh, Texas and Stanford 
on paper, looking at the roster, holy cow is, I mean, that is the most talent. When you look at what the, what these young men have done on pro circuits and, you know, in ITF junior rankings, they are the elitist of rosters, but whether they can turn that into actual results in a college scenario, college scene, yeah, that remains to be seen. Very good point by you, by the way. They had Ferry for the early season Cal loss. Their losses to Washington and Oregon, no uh, no Ferry, no, uh, no Banerjee in either of those losses as well. So, yeah, of course it's going to hurt to lose two of your top four. But again, you're Stanford. Like, the depth should be there. And I do think it's worth noting, like, this team has not been good at five and six for much of the past couple of years, Chris. And, you know, again, last year you look at the five number five position, this team goes eight and 10 overall at the number five position. Last year at the number six position, this team goes 11 and 10 at the number six position. I just don't know how that happens with Stanford. Again, like it's Stanford. Am I being yeah. crazy here? No, that's no. And, and, and it's not like they've been super shallow. They've had play. They've had rosters yeah. with guys on it. There's no reason for them to be, to be going. Oh Yeah. Yeah, see, you can hear it in Chris's voice that we've had this debate once or twice in our times off mic as well. And, you know, again, that's what makes it so what makes this year's team so particularly fascinating is even if Arthur Ferry doesn't come back, which let's have that conversation here real quick. Arthur Ferry last season, 18 and four at the top spot. I think he was your ITA All-American. I mean, he's he's done the IT fall and that's finalist maybe. He Arthur Ferry was awesome at every point of his college career. I think he finishes the year number 3 in the ITA singles rankings and you know again, you look at what he was able to do over the course of this summer of this fall. I mean, why do we wonder if Arthur Ferry's not coming back? Because he's played himself into pro tennis position. The 21-year-old, 271 in the world right now, made his first challenger final uh, over the course of this year, made three other 25K finals, including two 25K titles, including a win over Toby Samuel in a 25K final this past summer. And yet, you know, again, you look at the roster right now, Arthur Ferry is listed on it for the Stanford Cardinal. I ask you, Chris, it starts there because if he comes back, national championship isn't the expectation, but they're in the inner circle. And I think it has to become a five-team race if he does come back. What is that a fair assessment? A and B, do you think he'll come back? Yeah, ab- absolutely. It's a it's a fair assessment. It's the reason we, you know, we, if, for those that have listened to all of our shows, sometimes we say top four, sometimes we say top five. It's because there's a top four. And if you have, you know, Ferry in this lineup and you have Basavaretti in this lineup and you have Banerjee and you have a healthy basing, they're in that mix. I just don't think the odds are very good of that happening. Everyone I've talked to uh, you know, and it, we talked to lots of coaches that say, no, he's he's not coming back. You know, a lot of the guys that, you you know, I tend to believe more a little closer to home from the from the British guys. They're like, no, he's not coming back. So that that tells me we've seen no no actual commitment to that, which tells me that he's probably still leaning on on playing pro. And it does make me wonder, though. If he's leaving the door open for the the possibility of you know kind of the the play when he wants to, there's nothing that says if and he's completely eligible. We all know that. Like he could come in 
for Friday, Sunday, Thursday, Saturday, I don't know what their matches are this year, uh, you know, play play us some weekend matches and get back out. Or, or obviously that would conflict with a lot of the challenger schedules, but he could play a very good full circuit of challengers and hit key matches and get in for the right time. I don't know that that's his motivation. I don't think it is. I just think he's, you know, he's going to play pro tennis and that's my gut. Yeah, it's a good gut instinct to have. And again, what would be the allure of coming back? This just goes full circle here. This is really just an advertising campaign for the Cardinal, but it's freaking Stanford. Like, I grew up in a community where if you had athletic aspirations, goal number one was to use that athletics to get you to Stanford. And especially in a culture of tennis where, again, it's a wealthier group and you need a little bit of money to probably compete in these circles. Not saying that there aren't plenty of people who find success in this uh, sport from other me uh, coming from other means. But like the allure to come back is you get that Stanford degree. The allure to come back is it's freaking Stanford. And that's why you can't close the door. And do I think we will see Arthur Ferry in the month of January? Absolutely not. Do I think we will see him in the month of February? A little more likely, but probably not. It's March that things become interesting for Ferry. And I just, again, that's something we will continue to put a pin in and keep note of until it's formally declared Arthur Ferry is not coming back because, again, it has not been formally declared that he's not. He's still on the roster. That said, even if he goes, Chris, the foundation of Basavaretti, Banerjee, and Basing, the triple Bs, as we like to call them uh, here at Cracked Rackets, it's an alluring top three, Chris. Even surface value alone. Like, Bosferetti made, what, quarters of NCAAs last year after playing most of the season with one wrist? And, you know, Banerjee, you watch his weapons, you watch his ability to move forward, the aggression with which he plays with, the decisiveness with which he plays with. Obviously, Max Basing last year able to go 16-8 and eight overall, 11-6 and six in dual match play, but, you know, was finished his season ranked number 33 in the country. Of those three names... Who do you expect to leap up to the number one? Or I guess, or who excites you the most of those three? Oh, Boston already for sure. Okay. Then mean, let me flip it a different way. Who is the most important of those three to Stanford's 2024 success? Basing. Ooh, that's see, that's what I want to hear and why. Uh, well, okay, look, first of all, I've seen hide nor hair of him since last NCAA season. <laughs> I see no reason, no ITF results. He didn't play in the fall for Stanford. I see no. Uh, you know, I, I don't find any, you know, remnants of club tennis matches. I don't know that he's played a damn match since last eight May. Uh, I, I haven't seen it. So uh, not only that, but look, of those three, Basa already with what he's done uh, in making challenger final, uh, you know, finals and then a couple quarterfinals. We, we know that he's got the game and that as he's healthier than he was last year, he could play one and he could. He can he could win an NCAA title. He could be the best player in college tennis if he's if he's on his game. He's going to be there. Banerjee, as you already alluded to, he had a solid year at three last year. Sure, maybe it's two this year if there's no ferry. Uh, don't know, but he did what he did at three. There's not a to me. There's not a big question there. The real question is, what are we going to get out of Basing? Basing had a better prior year than he did. You know, he he had a better. Uh, 2022 season than he did 2023 season. And now that I haven't even seen him play since the end of the 2023 season, it's just a lot of question marks. So to me, he's the most important guy. Mm -hmm. I think that's an excellent argument to make. And, you know, again, whoever is third 
of this listing should have the most success of the group, certainly, I would agree with. And because, again, they're all pretty talented players. And I, I actually think Bossoretti, I agree. I think that's the sure thing to play, number one. He's probably earned that right. Again, he had the most successful pro summer. He's seemingly been the healthiest of the group. He makes a Fairfield Challenger final in October, makes a couple of other Challenger quarterfinals as well. And by the way, him getting that opportunity to play ATP Challengers, now currently 457 in the world for the 18-year-old. That's a testament, by the way, to the benefits of the newly launched ATP Challenger Accelerator Program as part of college tennis. And was great to see Basov already have that sort of success. Banerjee, again, was the we- like it's the funkiest fall and summer of the bunk because we saw a lot of Basoretti. We saw none of Basing. We saw a decent amount of Banerjee, who, by the way, ultimately 891 in the world after this summer. He made a final at a 15K in East Lansing, gets a couple of good wins. Guys like Alafiayeni, Will Grant, Derek Pham, all in straight sets before getting knocked out by Ozan Barris in the final. Played 22 pro matches, made three quarterfinals or further, a semifinal in Pittsburgh, where, by the way, he beat Pat Maloney, a final in East Lansing, as I alluded to as well. Former junior Wimbledon champion last season, uh, ultimately, which, which was, of course, his freshman season. Did you consider it a disappointment? What, what, like, again, he goes Banerjee 15-5 and five in dual match play. It felt like he was never a part of that best freshman in college tennis conversation. And yet, like, 15-5 and five is pretty damn good, Chris. Like, it, it, he had the second most wins on the team. He trailed only Ferry in dual match play. Yeah, I mean the numbers were good, but I'm with you. And in, in the in the course of the season, we it just felt I don't know. It, I I think it felt like because of all the hype coming in, Junior Wimbledon, et cetera, that we expected more. I don't know how much more you really expect from a freshman, but yeah, fifteen and five playing two through four, just to your point, is really good. Yeah, yeah. You get it if you tell me you're going to bring a freshman in and that's what he's going to do. You'll say, "I'll oh, sign me up. I'll take yeah. it. I'll you know, <laughs> I'll take two of those, please." Um, <laughs> but uh, but yeah, it wasn't uh, it wasn't the sort of like you're you're dreaming a little much like I would say we did, even though they weren't seventeen year old freshmen guys like you know a JPJ getting eligible coming in or even Lerner Tien who didn't even get to play one being you know, sitting behind Steph. But you're 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 always in that dream world of these. There's so much hype behind these guys that I expect them to come in and just run the table and win everything and never lose. And it just doesn't happen. Uh, and I think that was case in point there, he, yeah, he got to play, you know, a lot of, a lot in that three spot. He was really good, but no, probably not in that conversation for, uh, and I think part of it too is it, you watch him and it's not, uh, you don't watch his game and go, holy cow, look at those huge weapons. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think part of it is sort of that eye test where he's not blowing people off the court. He's just really good and solid. Yeah, uh, I, I, I do want to point out though, he beat Melios first round NCAs last year. He got wins over guys like Peter Mock, PY, Zverts, Mitsui, Yuska, Braswell. It's a good a Jonah Braswell, not Micah. That's a good freshman season. Like, yeah. I might even push back. I think he does have real weapons, Chris. He's a guy I would put on the sneaky radar to make that sophomore surge that we haven't seen much of yet, but He's a guy, and you look for what Banerjee was able to do in the fall this year, Samir Banerjee, who we, I think we did see perhaps more than any other Stanford Cardinal, 6-3 uh, and three overall in play this fall. I think he's the guy that's got to take another step forward because, to your point, just the last thing on Basing, do you know Basing was ranked as high as number four 
in the nation last year. Do you know Basings ITA All-Americans? Zeverts, three-set wins over Zeverts, Samuel, and Waldeeb. Straight-set win over Fomba before losing in three to Phil Henning in the semis. Like, again, that's who he was in the fall. He had a decent spring, like wins over Ryder Jackson, a win over Blaze Bicknell. But, like, outside of that, it was, you know, losses to Tech, to Maloney, to Hashimoto, to Carlton. Like, wasn't the biggest contributor down the home stretch. And you just do wonder, was that injury related? Obviously, we haven't seen him since. If they get fall, 2022 fall max basing, again, it's a ceiling raiser. Now it's a top three that can straight up sweep you on the wrong day. Even if it's Virginia's top three, even if it's Texas's top three, doesn't matter. They got a shot at all three spots with that top three. That's where it starts for Stanford as you look at the returners. And again, that we didn't see Basing at all play at the college level. Bosferetti, we may not have seen in college, but man, he was so good at the challengers that I don't really care that we didn't see him in college. I, to go full circle on the question I talked about, I think Basing is the guy you turn to as perhaps the most significant in defining the ceiling of this group of the three Bs. And look, they also get Chaudhry back. They get Philip Kolazinski back. They get Anders Mata back. They bring in the transfer, Harsh Hemang Parikh, over from Penn for his final season. And he had been a contributor. He's got north of 50 dual match play in singles in his uh, experience. But look, it starts with that top three. And then you talk about the superstar freshman class they bring in. And the best version of Stanford sees Kolazinski, sees Chaudhry, sees Mata, sees all of those guys as really nice, luxurious bench pieces because this team brought in the number one recruiting class. This team brought in some absolute studs. And, you know, probably starts with Kyle Kang, who was number one in his recruiting class, who was a quarterfinalist, U.S. Junior, uh, U.S. Open juniors and you again has had some pro success mixed in as well. Of course, you can also throw in a guy like a Hudson Rivera, thirteen nineteen UTR guy who's also had some pro success uh, on the ITF future circuit. And then again, when you're least heralded of your freshman superstar class is ITF junior ranked number twenty three, Nico Godzik, who might already who might walk into college tennis as one of the twenty best doubles players we have, and that's just a testament to the success he has had. 2022 Kalamazoo boys, uh, 18's national doubles champion. I forget if he backed up that title this year or not. I actually think he did go back-to-back with the doubles titles. I'll check in a moment, but like, man, these three freshmen are really good, Chris. The Maybe the biggest blessing is that none of them would have to be asked if Basing is healthy to step in to a top three role, and yet... It does feel like they all have the level to do so. Talk to me about who excites you most in this freshman class, Chris. Well, I mean, I, I think for sure it's Kyle Kang. Uh, he's He's got to be. And, and I would go so far as to say because I haven't seen basing, I actually think that, you know, my head is saying Kang's probably, you know, if we assume no fairy – and the fact we haven't seen basing, even if he's coming back healthy and if he hasn't played, he's probably sitting down at uh at at, f- at four. I think we see Kang at three. And to your point, Godsick did win uh uh Yeah, he back to back doubles, I, I yeah. believe. Yeah. Yes. Um but yeah, I I I think Kyle Kang is gonna be I think he's prop he has a very good shot of playing three in this lineup and and he to your I mean to your point he's had some great success on on the you know pro junior all, all of the circuits if you will 
he he had wins over uh you know guys like Ozon Barris who we just talked about uh you know mm-hmm. uh Barris ha- having some success in the in the 15k there over Banerjee but I, he's got he's got a lot of a, a lot of good wins under his belt. I think he's the guy that is going to make the difference for them, assuming that there's no fairy and a questionable basing that makes him pivotal to me in the top of that lineup discussion. I'll tell you what, if fairy does come back and Kyle King is playing four, I mean, come on now. By the way, Neil Rajesh, who I kind of wrote off as one of the returners, he's 53 in the country after the yeah. fall that he put together. He's the one returner, I think, that's probably still in that, you know, in the discussion. Now, if there's no fa- fairy, no basing, there's multiple in discussion, but he's the one that's sure. in discussion for still playing, uh, you know, that is going to be fighting these three freshmen for a spot in the lineup. A hundred percent. But to your point, I do think Kang, who was ranked as high as 16 in the ITF juniors, like, Yes, he is the guy who you look to perhaps more than anything. Kang, who's right now 630 in the ATP rankings, 591. His career high went 23 and 15 over the past year. Like That is something to get excited about. Again, and a guy in Hudson Rivera, he's got a lot of like just matches under his belt from the past year. And the 19-year-old has played a lot of pro tennis of late. He's, or excuse me, 5 and 12 in his pro tennis this year. So he hasn't played a ton of late. But I believe last season racked up. It was last year. That, yeah. yeah, that's what it was, yeah. where he went 11 and 6 and made a couple of runs at Futures events. Of course, Hudson Rivera, also a guy uh, who was one of the higher-ranked juniors in his class as well. And then, you know, again, that Nico Godzik, who is going to get we're not going to do this to you, Nico, because his father is Tony Godzik, former man, former agent of Roger Federer. His mother's Mary Joe Fernandez. Like everybody's gonna be like, oh, it's Nico Godzik. Don't worry, Nico. We're going to treat you as the freshman you are. We're going to give you that benefit of the doubt uh, of the doubt you deserve. We're going to give you. By the way, you're going to be anonymous to us, Nico Godzik. You're just Nico until you've earned it. Until you go and win some matches, and then we'll start to bring up all those other cool things you've done. Like what will make me mad is if Stanford is playing in a match that Crack Rackets isn't covered and we get the whole Nico Godzik piece of, oh, this kid has it all. It's like, actually, I don't know if this kid's going to be in the singles lineup for the Cardinals this uh, the Cardinal this year. Like, I'm excited to see him earn it. I'm excited to see him go out there and play because, again, the technique is pure. I mean, the double is such a sound doubles player. He will be ready to contribute right away in that sense. Like, there's some serious pedigree with this class. And I think the thing that is most encouraging, again, is the healthiest version of Stanford does not see any of them forced to play a top two position, certainly. If they're playing top two, it means they are that good right away and they have earned that spot. And again, one through six, Chris, in theory, in singles, yeah, they got a lot of things to work in in doubles. They're probably going to have three new pairings. And, you know, again, a, a half of those teams, you, you could have... Five sophomores or freshmen in your doubles lineup. On the other side, just the other side of the equation, Ohio State, Chris, is going to have 25 years of experience at least in their doubles lineup between Kingsley, Boulay, Luchanic, Cash. Like, right there, that's 20 years of experience. Right there. That's already more than Stanford might have in their doubles lineup, and we know those sorts of things matter. And yet, as you start to flesh out this lineup, I know we've already kind of talked about breakout summers and falls. So let's just get right to it. Who's your MVP and why? 
Well, I mean, I think the guy clearly when you're making challenger finals, it's possible already. I sure. mean, he, that that's the guy from the from the breakout perspective that um, and, and we can all assume that it's probably because he actually got healthy and we knew of the, the issues he had last year. But, uh, you know, well, I, I don't know for sure. All I know is he had a he had a great post last, you know, academic season uh this this summer and fall and he's he's the mvp for me there's no there's no question about it i think everybody else has got they've all got something to prove after him yeah it's that's it's again it's one of you back-to-back days chris you're making some pretty good arguments i i'm not i want to say banerjee and i've already made that like I just think Samir Banerjee is extraordinarily underrated. Every time I watch Samir Banerjee play, I, I think to myself, oh, yeah, there's a reason he won Junior Wimbledon. Like, this guy's legit. And I think him being that guy, as the kids like to say, Chris, if he's him, have, has that expression come to you? Have you heard the I'm him expression? Has that reached your corners of the world? No. Okay, well, that's how guys describe themselves now is if you're that guy, right? I'm him. I'm the guy there. The real thing is him is, you know what? We should do this on every podcast. This should be a new bit where I explain one new terminology that kids are using to Chris because what it means to be him is that he's the guy that your girl is thinking about while she's with you is like, I'm him. I'm that guy. Um, So... There's your new Chris. I want you at your next real job. I almost said next time you're at a real real work meeting, I want you to say, "Guys, I'm him." Like when it comes to this coding, <laughs> shit, I'm him, um, and just see how your office face, like especially because I'm sure you do have some younger coworkers. I think they would die with laughter, Chris. Like, <laughs> you want to get an easy laugh from the crew? Like just say, "Hey, guys, like come on." When it comes to this stuff, you know I'm him. Um, anyways, the funny thing is when you say that, like. All of a sudden, my Gruskin head comes on and goes, it wouldn't even be funny because they'd all go, yeah, we know. Yeah. <laughs> that's what I'm saying. That's, what I, that's my argument, Chris. Like, like that wasn't even funny. <laughs> that, that's literally the crux of my argument. I couldn't agree with you more. Um, I think if Banerjee's him, <laughs> I can't even say it with a straight face. You've ruined this segment. I've ruined this segment. If Banerjee is him, <laughs> okay, I swear. This time I'm getting through the sentence. If Banerjee is him, it means all of the freshmen, Kang, Rivera, Godzik, they're not going to be asked to play in those top three spots right away. I mean, you could make the same case for Basing, by the way, as well. But we've already talked enough about him. I just think if Banerjee is like, no, 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 Nishesh is number one, but I am clearly your number two, then the burden is just that much less on the freshmen. They have that much more time to get acclimated to get the environment, that much more time to get acclimated to balancing the rigors of a Stanford academic schedule with the rigors of playing twice a weekend in these high-pressure moments for this squad. He's only a sophomore, but I think Samir's going to have to be one of the veteran presence in what is otherwise a younger playing roster, particularly, again, if Ferry doesn't come back. That would be MVP case number one. I'm curious your thoughts on that. I'm also curious. My, do you want to hear MVP case number two, or do you want to talk about Samir oh, Energy being him? Two. Okay, number two would be who's ever at six, because whoever, if it's the third freshman, if it's Rajesh, whomever it is, should be one of the best six singles in the country. And in a year where they again were 11 and 10 at number six last season, that cannot be the case this year. This Stanford team. 
even in you're right, the Geller era and like uh, and Rotsard and all those teams, they still did have some questions. Even the Fawcett teams at five, at six, where yeah, there was talent there, but they were unproven. I guess in some sense they're unproven still at five and six this year, but man, as we've pointed out, no one is going to question their talent. And I just think whomever that number six player is for Stanford this season, like 15 and five is the number. Like they have to be really good down below. That's where they should have the comparative advantage against every team who didn't make it up to number five in our preseason rankings, right? Yeah, well, I'm with you. For me, look, I expect... Boss was ready to be good at one. I expect mm-hmm. Banerjee to be really good at two. I, I do expect him to be him, as you say. <laughs> the problem is they've done nothing. I think they've had the talent and they've still done nothing at the mm-hmm. bottom of the lineup. I think that sixth spot will tell us all we need to know about this team. If they get, if they have a really good record at six, they're going to be just fine because I, they're fine at the in the top two spots, even, even if there's no ferry or basing. The, the, then things might with both of them, if both were out, it gets maybe a little trickier in the middle. But then again, if all of a sudden you're five and six or putting up good numbers, they're they're fine. Uh, yeah. So I think that sixth spot is going to really tell the story for them this year. Yeah. They've got to your point. It's got to be way better than 500. This is a team that should be putting up like, you know, 20 and five, 19 and five kind of numbers at the sixth spot. So did I convince you that should be the MVP was number two, the better argument? No, I, 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 for sure. It's not, it's not too. Banerjee's going to be great. I don't like, they're going to be fine with him. I mean, I, and I do, I expect Ferry to be gone. I expect it to be boss of already Banerjee at one, two. So you're telling me their number six singles player should be him. Yeah. If their six player is him, their six singles is him. They're, they're fine. That's uh, Chris. I just want you to start framing things in that perspective. Nothing would make me happier moving forward. Again, it's a big day for you. I'm telling you, when you pick up your granddaughter, I I feel like I'm giving personal details here, but that's what you're doing later today. When she's like, "So how's your day, Grandpa?" You can go. You know what? I'm kind of him today. Uh, I just wonder if she like is she's I'm, old enough to be like what? Yeah, yeah that could be where you test it. If I'm you did so- it with yeah. I'm totally doing, I'm totally pulling that out and we'll have to report back on the reception I get for those that don't, my granddaughter's 11. So we'll see if the, you know, if, if him has made it down to 11 or if that's more like a 15, 16 and up thing. Yeah, that's fascinating. We'll find no, out. Yeah, like my younger brother in college, that's a, that's a Nicholas Gruskin staple. Um, anyways, <laughs> let's talk schedule opportunities. Let's talk inflection points in this team's roster because obviously the big thing is I don't know how they didn't fit. I mean, 16-11, I guess, is how they finished outside the top 15 teams. But, you know, let's be clear. The Stanford team finished number 18 as such. They are not hosting one of the 15 kickoff regions in ITA kickoff weekend. No, they are going on the road. And, you know, they chose to head to Ann Arbor. Well, they were take on uh, Memphis first and then likely the Wolverines will take on Nevada first in that kickoff region. Still, outside of that, I got. I feel like we have been unduly harsh to Coach Goldstein, and I do want to give him some credit. He gave himself a real schedule this year. He said, we got the boys, we've got the horses, let's see how we compete. And obviously, they've got a full Pac-12 schedule, but between kickoff weekend, they will certainly be hoping to get to the national indoors. That said, between kickoff and a hypothetical national team indoors, at TCU, at Texas, Pepperdine at home. 
I like that scheduling. And then again, they've got the uh, conference matches. They're at USC this year. They're at a UCLA team that, by the way, if Nanda is officially back, they become a little bit feistier over in Los Angeles. The other one, at USC, at UCLA, and at Arizona and Arizona State. Now, they've got a home-and-home with SC, so they'll get another look at them there. But, Chris, that's a real schedule. Yeah, I definitely. I mean, that... The, look, the the TCU Texas weekend, right? <laughs> that's both on the road. That's gonna that's gonna tell him a, a lot uh, that all he needs to know. And and that's coming off. That's coming the you know the weekend after kickoff weekend where they're gonna be playing indoors at Michigan. Which you, look, we all know the Michigan team is not the same Michigan team they had last year after losing their top three guys. But no match in Ann Arbor indoors is going to be easy and. If, as we expect, there's no ferry and you're playing two or three freshmen in your lineup indoors in Ann Arbor, it's going to be loud. It's going to be a good test for them. And then they're going to turn right around with whatever they've learned, regardless of the outcome, and go play at TCU and at Texas. Oh, that's a that's a rough start to the season. And if they come out, if they come out of there somehow and don't drop more than, say, one match. Let's say that they win in Ann Arbor and they split Texas TCU. Holy cow, are they feeling good? Uh, you know, any win at Texas TCU is going to be good. And if they can get a win in all, as you said, in all likelihood over Michigan, I I think that's going to be a really good match. But you know, I think they're a heavy favorite if you have Ferry and Basing in the lineup. I don't think we see at least one of those guys. And I think it gets really interesting with a bunch of freshmen in there. So. I, I expect that to be one of the, you know, there's always three or four really good final matches on the kickoff weekend. That's one I expect to be a barn burner. Not only are they really good at that point, if they split one and one in that Texas road trip, they're probably a top eight seed at that point if they split yep. one and one on that Texas road trip. And so that's absolutely the weekend. And by the way, let me ask you this. Some scholars would argue if we got Arthur Ferry for just that Texas weekend, it would be worth it. What say you, Chris Halioris? Well, of course. I mean, that's like saying one's better than zero. Of course. I know. That's what I'm saying. I'd be like, (laughs) how nice would it? It's like saying one's better than zero. That's fine. Show up and then declare that you're leaving college. I don't care. We get the win anyway. That's what I'm saying. And then then there can just be another massive asterisk next to an NCAA. And it's be like, well, we could have had Ferry and we didn't. (laughs) Um, So that's what I'm saying. Arthur, if you want to provide maximum entertainment value, clear your schedule February 2nd, February 4th. It'll be right after you lose third round of this year's Australian Open after coming through qualifying. You're going to fly directly from Melbourne. You don't even need to go out to Stanford. You're just going to fly directly to Austin. We know some people in the area who will house you until the team comes and catches up, and then you're going to play those two matches, and then you can go pro. Like, that's actually, I would die with laughter. That would be, I would really enjoy that. I'm just saying, that would be maximum entertainment value and best for the content purposes. But look, even without Ferry, as we talk ceiling and floor, I know yesterday you said with South Carolina, you think they were the first team with legitimate national championship ceiling. I'm getting baited into it, Chris. I'm going to make the mistake on behalf of Matt Stokowiak and you. This team is the first team I see with a real national championship ceiling. And if Arthur Ferry comes back, that almost becomes a national championship. I don't want to say expectation, but it becomes a legitimate goal you can put on your bulletin board is, hey, we've got the talent. We've got the group. 
We may not have the big match chops, but man, could they do something special this season, even without Fairy, though. I mean, again, we've t- we haven't talked about Neil Rajesh, one of the top 60 players in the country right now. They have real depth on this roster in a way they haven't had in a few years. And if even one of their freshmen click, if two out of the three Bs bring the level they brought last season or from this summer and fall, this team is really, really good. This is a team who, again, if they're not a top eight seed come the NCAA tournament, you feel like something went wrong, really wrong from a floor perspective. Where are you with that ceiling floor discussion? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, with Fairy, absolute contend national championship contender. I think it starts to get very interesting in the discussion without Fairy. On paper, yes, they they should still be a contender. But when I look at then how much they're going to have to rely on some freshmen and the best, you know, and it's everybody wants to just look at the players and go, those players are good. The best equivalent I think I could give is Virginia didn't win it when Rodesh and Von der Schulenberg and Montez were freshmen. Okay, it took them a year. You're I don't you know. It's going to take us three years to come back in hindsight and compare the this freshman class to that freshman class, you know, and see how it is. But fre- teams that are relying on three freshmen to play just don't come in and win national championships. It's very rare. And if they do, and I'm not saying they can, if they do, that's, I mean, they've got a really special class. I think it's going to be asking too much without Ferry. They're still in that conversation. But the floor, that and that's the thing, I, it just would be, to count on all the freshmen to make that run in every single match through NCAAs would just be so hard to do. But the floor, because of just where they're where they're going to be all year, even if Ferry's not in there, that floor should not be, you know, they should be a 10-12, you know, at worst. They should be a top 10 team. They've got too much depth on this team, even without Ferry. I mean, even without Ferry and Basing, they're going to be playing Bossa already, Banerjee, Kang, Nico, Hudson Rivera, Neil Rija. That, that's a that team should be top ten anyway. Couldn't agree with you more. And here's the last piece I'll add, and then final word goes to you. We talked at the very beginning of this podcast. Stanford has not made an NCAA quarterfinal since 2012. Kang, Godzik, and Rivera, all freshmen. Banerjee, Bossa already, sophomores. Basing Jr. You have a two-year window. Like, there is no ifs, ands, or buts about it. Stanford, you have a window to compete maybe, not just for your first quarterfinal since 2012, but a window to compete for your first national championship since 2000. And look, you never know how long Basavaretti is going to stay. Maybe he wants to go turn pro. Maybe a Banerjee has a breakthrough year, and with the Accelerator program, he wants to go turn pro. Again, we haven't seen any of Basing. What if he wants to become a, finan- a financier or a lawyer or a doctor, and that's what he's been locked in on? Like, you just never know. Here's what I'm saying is they have a two-year window, but you never know how quickly that window will close. And so I am curious to see how they balance those two things of knowing, hey, we could have a future, but there's got to be some urgency now here, Chris. And I just think it's a fascinating time for the Cardinal, who, by the way, they're going to be in the ACC next year. Like there are a whole host of changes coming for all things Stanford athletics. And this is the last year of normalcy. 
and a year where you have a roster who can accomplish some really special things. So again, we started this podcast by saying Stanford has lost our benefit of the doubt. They got to gain it this year, Chris, like because there are just so many things on the horizon for this program. Last word on all things Stanford, go to you. Yeah, I think, well, you bring up an interesting point in in the in the transition to the ACC. I can't wait. I've heard lots of rumors. I can't wait to see how that plays out because, look, it's not easy for anybody going either direction. The problem is they're going to be going, you know, if things pan out to where they actually have to, play, there's no neutral site matches, which I've heard rumored. Uh, but if that doesn't happen and they're playing at all these schools, they're making the trip east a lot more than than the other way around because of where all the schools are located. And look, the academics may not prevent people from getting in, but there are issues, I think, you know, scheduling logistical issues at Stanford for some of these kids in terms of getting out of out of school for for things. And it's going to be a royal pain in the rear for the for the tennis team to be going all the way from California to the Carolinas every other weekend in a tennis season. I can't wait to see how that plays out. I'm and all that being said, yeah, to yes, they have a big window because they're so young, but I don't hold out any hope for how much of the core of that team will still be together. Now, I think they probably do have a second year, uh, but goodness, boss of already. If he continues to play like he is, he's certainly going to be ready to go play challengers. Does he leave to do it full time? I don't know. I think he'd probably love to love to get that degree. But ah, that that window is a it is not going to be it's not going to be the window you think it is when you're looking at guys that have three and four years on them. Well, here's the real full circle moment, Chris, is maybe Basavaretti does qualify for the accelerator program again. Maybe he goes and plays a full year of ATP Challenger events, and then maybe the subsequent fall he goes, you know what? I'm actually going to go back to Stanford and play my yeah. fourth year of eligibility yeah, because exactly. apparently that's something we can do nowadays. And I'll tell you what, Chris, to stay consistent, I would be all for it. So, folks, there's your look at number five, Stanford, again, as polarizing of a team as I think we have in the country this season, as talented of a team and a team we are certainly looking forward to compete throughout the course of the year. With that said, top four schools to go. Now, maybe some of you have already filtered out in your brain who those top four teams will be. I know if you've listened to my recent Cracked Interviews podcast with Michael Woodson with Harry Jaden. You might have heard some teases in there as it relates to our debate for the number one school. But look, more than anything, we're just eagerly anticipating the start of the 2024 college tennis season. And I have to offer a massive thank you, of course, to my dear friend, Chris Haliora says we pulled a little bit of a pivot here from a scheduling perspective. John J. Parsons a little bit under the weather. So I had to ask Chris to go back to back for us. Now, because we went back to back, it means we're not going to hear from Chris Haliora until next week when we'll learn all about his explorations. Do his grandkids refer to him as him moving forward? That's an open question. I know we're all looking forward to the answer to Here's what I'll ask, Chris. Send out a tweet. Maybe like uh, like this podcast is going to come out today, so hopefully listeners of it will hear it and then go like the tweet. If you heard this tweet, if you made it this far, go like it. If it works, will you just tweet out at some point today, I'm him? And just like just like tweet it out or like look up a good gift to tweet the I'm him gift because I'm sure there's some good ones out there. 
and listeners of this podcast go like that tweet because <laughs> I will I will die. Like I think that would be one of the funniest things in the world. But final well, word. I, e- either way, I guess then you're either going to see the I'm him or I'm clearly not him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let me say. I'm clearly not him would be just as funny of a tweet. Like I, I'm in on both of them. So do what you got to do. But a thank you to you for being flexible. And a thank you, as always, to our super producer, Danny Westoff, for the of editing job he does day in, day out, making all of our content possible. With that said, we're going to be back on schedule next week. We're also going to be back to previewing our top 10 women's teams over the next two days. So again, apologies for the schedule confusion. But the whole goal is just to make sure we've previewed each and every team before the start of the 2024 season. So, of course, all of you college tennis fans feel ready to rock and roll into another year. For the meantime, though, that will do it for today's episode. So for the fantastic Chris Halioris, our super producer, Daniel Westoff, and all of us here at both Crack Brackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, I am your host, Alex Gruskin. Chris, what do we tell our listeners? Hey, great shot. And we will see you all tomorrow. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, everyone.